Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you forgive us of our sins, that you prepare our hearts for an encounter with you again. God, may your spirit take us into a place of deep truth, a place of joy, a place of encouragement, a place of hope, a place of radical discipleship. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Yes, today uh, we get to uh, change gear. Uh, I said last week that if uh, we divided up the book of Revelation into two chapters only, um, today would be beginning chapter two. So yes, today we get to change gear. If you enjoy chiastic structures and you had to divide the entire book up and you wanted to look at the kind of like patterns of the entire book and you were looking for the central message of the entire book of Revelation as you wanted to understand who Jesus is and what he had to share with you about himself, today we shift gears and you would discover that. If you want to hear the radical call of Jesus for radical discipleship, Yes, today we change gears. But first, uh, for those of you who are brand new, uh, and I see a few new faces today, and for those of you who are regulars, you'll, you'll see that uh, this is, we've done this before. I just want to share some instructions for you so that you can breathe through this, because there can be a certain level of anxiety when you come to the book of Revelation, right? You're kind of like, whew, the book of Revelation? And, and today, I'm, I'm coming to the book of Revelation, and, and this middle section here, this can, can be kind of intense. So let me, uh, let me just help you breathe through this. It's kind of like a, um, a pregnancy class, right? Uh, and I, I want you to get ready for labor, but uh, I want you to do it well, and I want you to be prepared for this. So I'm going to state a sentence, all right? Uh, you will see the sentence on the screens, and then we will repeat the sentence together. It's a very simple exercise. Not difficult, not complex, but hopefully you'll understand with these three sentences why it's going to be okay. First, I will pace myself. Now you see this on the screens, and you'll repeat it with me. I will pace myself. Isn't that good? You're going to resist the urge to know everything there is inside the book of Revelation and what it means instantly because... Nobody knows what everything means in the book of Revelation. If anybody comes and tells you that they know what everything means in the book of Revelation, run, run far, all right? Secondly, I will enjoy the journey. You get to see it? I will enjoy the journey, absolutely. The book of Revelation is from Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's supposed to show you the full character of God, which is what the whole Bible's about. You're supposed to enjoy the journey. Third, this was true then and it is true now. This was true then and it is true now. It meant something back then. It means something to us uh, now as well. So everything we read in the book is symbolic, it's in code, it's made a lot of sense back then, and each week we go into the book and we discover something inside the book that, that is supposed to pull us into a closer relationship with Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, that as I've gone in here, I've pulled you back to the start 
to help you with a different perspective every single week. So the first week, we, we just simply kind of read the chapters, right? Then the second week, uh, I did a, a kind of like a map where I showed you the churches and the seals and had they had a timeline. Then the third week, I pulled you back and I said, hey, you know what, there's a, there's a sanctuary scene at the beginning of each scene. Well, this week, this week, I want you to see that there's a, a springboard text. You're like, what? A springboard text? Yeah, I know. And this is the first question. So you'll need your worship guide. If you don't have your worship guide, just put your hand up and we'll make sure you have your worship guide. Anybody need a worship guide? Right at the front up here, this side as well. We can make sure that we get some worship guides up here. Thomas on up here, that'd be great, thank you. And over, right over the other side as well. So, um, with the worship guide, here's the first question. Why do we need the springboard text? Oh, great question. Who thought of this? I did. I know. I know. I know. It's okay. And I wrote it in here. <laughs> I know it's good. Well, a springboard text is a really good thing because it's a text that kind of sets you up for the future. It tells you a little bit. And John did this very carefully. He put these Bible texts in here to kind of set you up to let you know something was about to happen. And there's lots of them all through the book of Revelation. And I'm going to give you just two examples, and then I'm going to show you the one that actually helps us with our text today. So the first example is in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. In your Bibles, it's page 1131. That's the Pew Bible, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. And I don't know what you want to write in your Bible. I, you could draw a little springboard, a diving board, uh, a little diagram inside there, but Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. And uh, page 1131, and this is what it says there. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is a springboard text. It's supposed to say, if you read this, just watch out, something's going to happen. And if what I would do in your Bible is I would write, well, you would write in your Bible, I, I would write in my Bible. Uh, I would write a little springboard here, and I would write Revelation 4-5, because this text tells you, it springboards to tell you something about conquering, sitting on the side of the throne. It's telling you something's going to happen in Revelation 4-5. And it does. In Revelation 4-5, Jesus sits on the throne with God the Father. Another one, Revelation chapter 6, verse 7, page 1133. Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, sorry. Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. It says there, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Great question, scary question. Who can stand against all of this? And you're kind of worried about this, so you write a springboard here, and you read Revelation chapter 7. Well, God will seal you and protect you and be with you and care for you. And you read about that inside this. So now we get to our text, Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. And this is kind of crazy, this text, because this text will tell us about the rest of the book of Revelation. It's a big springboard. It's kind of a springboard that the entire church could jump on and bounce on and just fly through this text. So Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, page 1136. This whole verse says this. The nations raged. This sentence, the nations raged, tells you a summary of chapters 12 through to 14. All right? Just that sentence. The nations raged. It's going to tell you that all of chapters 12, 13, and 14 
That's what's happening next, right? But, and then it says here, but your wrath came. Chapters 15 to 18, it's going to tell you now all that's happening next from chapters 15 to 18 is all about the wrath and Babylon falling and the plagues falling. And then it says, and the time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding your servants and the prophets and saints and those fear your name, both small and great, for destroying destroyers of the earth, is the rest of Revelation to chapter 22, the second coming of Jesus, judgment, the whole lot. Verse 18 basically is a springboard text to tell you how the rest of the book of Revelation is going to be spanned out. So John's saying, hey, I want to let you know how things are going to pan out. Now, there's a few more, so don't worry. Every week, I'm going to give you some more stuff inside this. So it's good to know, right? It's good to know that Jesus will win. It's good to kind of sense that there's going to be relief one day. So I want you to imagine, right? Imagine you are at a, a baseball game, and it's the baseball game of life right? The pitcher stands on the mound. And I did not check this. I should have checked with somebody who knows anything about baseball. I know nothing about baseball. So it is a mound, right? Good. That was good. That was close. Right. The pitcher, the guy with the ball stands on the mound, right? And this represents chapters 1 to 11 as he pitches the ball. This is the first part of Revelation. He throws the ball. Chapter 12, which is what uh, was read earlier, is where he makes contact with the ball. The guy is holding this uh, stick. I think you guys call it a bat. Uh, and it flies outside the stadium. It's that powerful a strike, right? Where the ball flies outside the stadium, so much so that everybody starts standing, because I think that's what would happen, right? You would be like in awe. Would you not? Would you be in awe? Would that be a good thing? It would. If the ball went outside the stadium, you're like, man, that's a great shot. I was worried if that was a bad thing. But it's a good thing. The ball goes flying outside the stadium, and you're thinking, it's all fantastic. Everybody's really excited because Jesus is fulfilling his promise. This is chapter 12 of Revelation. But halfway through chapter 12 of Revelation, as we enter into chapter 13, Satan creates a super team. I mean, you're thinking your team is amazing because you've got like a guy who can hit the ball out of the stadium. But Satan creates a super team who is really quite dynamic. So intense here that you now you're starting to second guess, even with the guy who can knock the ball out of the stadium, whether you can win. And that's the tension of Revelation right now in the center. Is that good? All right, so let's break this down. It starts in chapter 11, verse 19, the Ark of the Covenant. Raiders of the Lost Ark, everybody knows what that is, so we all know. The Ark of the Covenant, pretty significant. It's a sanctuary, and it pulls us into the most holy place because it wants to tell us that there's something pretty significant taking place here. It's the grand day of atonement. Chapter 12 begins with this uh, analogy of a metaphor with the woman and the dragon, which is what Kevin read to us, the woman and the dragon. And if you read The Daily Walk, uh, you would be able to understand what the woman and the dragon were. Um, and I won't go into all the details of how we actually know what they are, but you can read The Daily Walk to be able to break it down. I'm going to just give you the quick summary here real quick. The woman equals the church. All right? Fair? She has a crown, and in Greek it's called stephanos. And this is important because in, in, it means victory. And every crown in the book of Revelation until this point here... Everybody who gets a crown is always called Stephanos 
because they get a crown from victory. It isn't a crown they've been given because of their right. It's a crown that they've earned because of a victory, because something's been gained. The dragon, the dragon represents Satan. And he has a crown, and it's called, in Greek, diadema, which basically means the right to rule. He has authority. So now I'm going to just give you a kind of a side note for those of you who are brand new and haven't maybe seen the previous services. Uh, when we talked about radical choice a few weeks back ago, uh, we looked at Revelation 4-5. We also touched on this chapter 12 here. There were some cliff notes there, which I had mentioned here, which was that after the resurrection, after Jesus had resurrected, remember how uh, he went to heaven and he grabbed this scroll, this uh, scroll that we talked about in Revelation 4 5. And as he grabbed the scroll, he sat on the throne next to his father and became co-ruler of the universe again. And this includes planet Earth. And what we said is that as soon as he did this, he banished Satan from having access to heaven. And everybody said, amen, this is great. Satan no longer has access to heaven. He doesn't represent this planet anymore in the book, as we had seen in the book of Job. And everybody said amen as well. I'm so glad you're excited as well today. Yeah, yeah that's good, it's good. And half the church was here. Right, so, so the key is this. The crown which Satan, dragon, has was the right to rule planet Earth. He no longer has that crown. Do you understand? That's why the Greek was important. That's why he described the crown that the dragon had was not out of victory, but just out of right. So the dragon has no power now. So question number two in your worship guide, which I think is very important. What is the best defense against the dragon, Satan, attacking the woman, the church, right? What is the best defense against the dragon, Satan attacking the woman, the church. And we get to the verses of chapter 12 that were read elegantly earlier, and we have to watch all the vivid imagery of all the stuff inside there. We get a dragon, you know, with serpent, and he's pouring water out of his mouth like a river, and it's furious in war. And those are all well-known mythological images at the time of John. Lots of references to the First Testament, lots of images inside there from Genesis 3 and onwards. We get an image of the woman. Uh, she has two wings of a great eagle. She's going into the wilderness and the earth, and she has this offspring. Again, lots of great references from the First Testament of being rescued and being exiled, and we kind of pull them all together. They were written, and they made sense to the people at the time. All of these, though the dragon and the woman, are drawing us into a space, really to force us to eventually decide that we have two choices. See, there are two characters, the dragon and the woman. And you have two choices. Because no matter how hard the dragon tries in chapter 12, he can't get rid of the church. I mean, he's pushing, and he's spewing rivers and flooding the wilderness and chasing this woman, and she's pregnant, and he cannot kill her. She's fleeing into the wilderness. She has no support. It seems like there's no chance for whatever period is going on, and yet he can't get rid of her because the church is made up of radical disciples. And there's a secret to these radical disciples, and it describes it in chapter 12. 
It says that these are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? They keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And people kind of get like, whoa, what does that mean? That's kind of exciting. Maybe not. Maybe I've heard it before. Maybe I know what it means. I don't know. So I don't want you to forget that. It's really important. We didn't get to chapter 13, all right? So this is chapter 12. We get to chapter 13. Chapter 13, we discover that Satan, as a response to this, because he realizes that he hasn't been winning, he's going to do his final ditch attempts, right? And what he's going to do is he's going to create a, a counterfeit league. And, and this sounds like kind of DC Comics, because um, uh, Justice League and Counterfeit League and all this kind of stuff, what he does against God the Father, uh, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and his counterfeit league looks like this. You, you're going to have God the Father, and it's going to be uh, Satan that is going to be against him, and you're going to have uh, God the Son, and you're going to have the uh, sea beast and, and Jesus, and then you're going to have God the Holy Spirit, and you're going to have the earth beast. So in chapter 13, you have Satan, you have the sea beast, and you have the earth beast. So he creates his own trinity. You have the trinity, which is God, Jesus, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, and Satan with his sea beast and earth beast. And this is critical for us because Jesus is saying to us, look, to the seven churches, I'm, I'm telling you the seven churches, which are us as well, through John, through this letter, at the time, telling us today, I need you to know that you, to face radical discipleship, every single day you have two choices. You have to decide which trinity you belong to which one you want to be engaged with. It affects your life, it affects the lives of those around you, and the generations to follow. But Jesus is saying to you, don't give up, because I'm telling you in advance. I'm letting you know. I will give you radical choices and radical churches. And as they fail, your church will fail, by the way. It does fail. As your church fails, get this, Jesus says, I'm going to help you even more. And he will send you the Holy Spirit and to help you to make those radical choices so you'll never be alone. And he says to you that if, the, if you're not listening to the radical power of the Spirit, I'm going to give you radical warnings, which we looked at last week, to shake you up a little bit. And with prayer and patience, you'll repent and you'll return home. He always wants you to be leading as examples of radical discipleship. Because you can't be a disciple in a cocoon. And this is important. You can't be a disciple in a cocoon. So, question number three inside your worship guide. What does discipleship look like? Which is the $64 million question. What does discipleship look like? I was chatting this week with someone who said that they were watching the sermon from last week. And, uh, and, they, and they said that, you know, it's true. It ultimately comes down to them. They listened to the illustration that I shared at the end of the sermon uh, about my bike riding uh, episodes, uh, which I find still very hard. It's not like, hey, I did like five days last week and now it's really easy. <laughs> it's not any easier. <laughs> you know, it's going to take until Jesus comes back. And then in the twinkling of an eye, this body shall be transformed into a Greek god-like body. Oh, and then, poor bicycle, you shall suffer. <laughs> oh, we will take every mountain. And uh, I pray that in heaven there will be many mountains, <laughs> because I shall ride all of them. <laughs> I will ride them with one gear. 
It will be the hardest gear you ever find. No, no. Uh, so I, I understand. You know, the illustration that I was trying to share was basically is that I found riding very hard and that it takes a, a lot of effort for me to be able to ride, right? But, but, and this person was sharing with me that they understand because in faith, it takes a lot of effort to be able to be engaged in that. But I don't find it hard to open my Bible. I don't find it hard to that. When I look at my bicycle, I'm like, oh, you look great hanging on the wall. Why don't you stay there? Oh, car, you and I. You know, I mean, I don't feel that kind of thing. Maybe you feel that way with the Bible. You look at the Bible like, oh, you look beautiful on the shelf. Center table, stay. <laughs> and let's go over here. Uh, and so I don't feel that way with the Bible. And so they were dialoguing with me about this, and I thought that's actually true. Then they said this interesting point that they felt that um, it comes down to them. They have to make the decision. And I thought, well, yes, in part they have to make that decision, but that's not discipleship. Yes, it is a personal choice, but radical discipleship is not salvation, right? So, radical discipleship is a result of salvation. And this is important for us to kind of like process a little bit. So let me just pause on this a little bit. And so, and let me pick this apart because someone's going to say, did he just say, once saved, always saved, and blah, 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 and then it'll be quoted wrong and I'll be, you know, hung wrong and quartered for a while there. So let me just give you the 101 basics on this kind of stuff. Nothing you do can save you, all right? Nothing you can do. You can't earn it. You can't do a teeny weeny little bitty. You can't do anything to save it. It is by amazing grace of Jesus Christ that you are saved. But you accept that gift. And when you do, you kind of look at the world and you think to yourself, man, there's a, there's a lot of things wrong in this world. And you kind of want to fix that stuff. You look, you look at yourself and you say, man, I, I love Jesus. And he loves me so much that I love him. And it makes you want to follow Jesus, which is brilliant, right? And as you follow Jesus and you, you, you start to, to be engaged with him, you start to look at your own life as well. And he points and says, and lets you know things in your own life. And you say to yourself every day, I'm saying, Jesus, well, this is a problem in my life. And, and you share it with him. And that is discipleship, right? As you goof, and goof is a good word. As you goof, that's awesome. Because the more you goof, it means that you are talking to Jesus. If you're goofing and you don't know it, it means you're not talking to him. If you're goofing, you're messing up. It means that you're listening to the Spirit talking to you. It means you're struggling with God. It means you're living a life with Jesus. And so you start to rely on him. You start to recognize the voice of Jesus, and you rely on him. An authentic walk with Jesus is seen in your life. There is never a moment when you suddenly no longer need Jesus. There's never going to be a moment when you suddenly no longer need Jesus. And when you say, like, hey, I got this. You know, I don't need a Savior. I don't do anything wrong. I'm pretty darn amazing. I mean, making a choice to accept Jesus is very personal. And you can change your mind. And of course, that's called making a goof. That's right. <laughs> Make it sometimes a pretty major goof. Admittedly, rejecting Jesus until the final day is a pretty major goof, but it's okay because Jesus has never given up on you. Jesus is constantly nudging and chasing you all the time. Everyone has to make a choice 
And at some point, you make that choice. But it is different for every single person. Some people remember the exact moment when they made that choice. Some people remember that it's a, a growing choice. Some people remember that it happens many, many times. It's just like uh, falling in love, right? Everybody remembers falling in love? I don't love anyone. Everybody remember falling in love? Wow, what a cold-hearted crew. <laughs> Seriously, everybody remember falling in love? Yeah, everybody have somebody love them? Maybe mommy? All right, okay, all right, all right. So what do you tell your kids, or what do you tell people when they ask you, you know, uh, is it love? I mean, do you tell them it's chemistry? Do you tell them when it's neurons are flying? Do you tell them when it's, you get, it's kind of like electricity? Or do you tell them when your heart beats racing? Or do you tell them when, when blood rushes to certain parts of your body? Then you know it's true love. Do you tell them when it's like settling of joy? Do you tell them you, you just know? That's what it, you just know. I mean, what do you tell them? So Love Science, a uh, good website, suggests uh, these are the signs of true love. Are you ready? Uh, you can't stop thinking about them. Oh, good. I think that's pretty reasonable. Uh, adversity makes you closer. I think that's pretty good. You're a wreck. Lots of great emotions. You're just like, you're happy, you're sad. You're just lots of great emotions. You're experiencing emotions, which is lovely. They're perfect. You focus on all the good stuff about them. It's like you love thinking about them. You wish you could be together all the time. You hope you stay together forever. You would do anything for them. You may even make an audio cassette of 1990s music and send it to them. I mean, that's what true love is, right? And you keep on falling in love. It's a reminder that people, it's not a single moment. It keeps us a continual journey. So love groups. Radical discipleship is daily. So the personal commitment to accept the gift of salvation from Jesus is just the beginning of the journey. Baptism, just the beginning of the journey. Choosing a tribe, and just in case you're not aware of this, I would choose Adventism every time. It's just the beginning of the journey, right? All of this is part of radical discipleship. So the last thing Satan wants for you to do is to be in love with Jesus. Because if you're in love with Jesus, you have a growing relationship with him. Now, by the time you get to the end of chapter 13, there's a really popular number that pops up. I don't know if you've seen it. It's 666. You ever seen that number? Uh, it, kind of, it kind of represents uh, everything in art that's opposed to God, right? So I know you guys want me to crack it, so using the best mathematical and uh, historical and current event calculations, uh, analyzing all the political climate and the 20 commentaries that I reviewed in preparation for the series, checking and comparing the ancient interpretations of this number, I believe, are you ready for this? Revelation 13.8 offers us the best interpretation of 666 when it says this calls for wisdom, which I have none. Um, so I actually don't know what it is. Uh, I have no idea. And actually, I don't really give a rip. And maybe you do. And so go spend as much time as you want to on that. Uh, I don't care. I don't really don't care. And people spend a lot of time trying to work out what 666 is, and God bless you. Actually, uh, God doesn't really care a lot about it either. 
Because what you read afterwards, God says, look, he spends one verse on this, and then he says, let me tell you, actually, what I really want to talk to you about. Let me tell you that it takes wisdom on this, but someday it will become very obvious. You'll know what it actually is. But in truth, let me tell you, I want to talk to you about my response to this, which is Revelation chapter 14, radical discipleship. And I need you to read this with me. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, page 1137. So Revelation chapter 14 verses 1 to 5. And this is his response to Satan establishing his counterfeit league here. He, and Satan saying, I'm going to build my own trinity, and I'm going to try and pull people to love me, and people to follow me, and people to be engaged with me, and worship me. God says this, then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from men mankind as first fruits from God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, we've looked at this 144,000 a few weeks ago, so I'm not even going to bother to go inside that here, but this is the thing. All the language inside these five verses here, John is saying, I need you to understand, he's talking about a special people. He's talking about a people who are radical disciples, and he uses some interesting language. He says, they do not have any adultery, right? And adultery was a metaphor all the time used in the First Testament, basically saying that God would say, oh, Israel, you're not faithful to me. You go and you're unfaithful to me. Just come home. Come home and be faithful to me. And you got the famous story of Balaam, right? Balaam was a prophet for hire, and, and Balaam would go send prostitutes out on the outskirts so that the Israelite soldiers would come, sleep with them, and so they would be unfaithful. Well, this is what he said, I need you to be faithful to me. So the language of faithfulness is very important to them. He said, virgins, before going to war, the Israeli soldiers were told that they should not sleep with their wives. And this is actually still a common practice today for MMA fighters and boxers. Muhammad Ali was famous for saying that six weeks before a fight, he would not sleep with his wife because the last thing a fighter needs before going to, war, to, to the boxing ring is to feel kind of relaxed and satisfied. Oh, how are you feeling? I feel fine. How do you feel? Shall we, go? Shall we fight? I don't know. You first. You know, that's not going to be really, really helpful at that point. So I, I think this is the problem that David had with, uh, with Uriah, you know, the black ops uh, uh, fighter that he had when he tried to convince him to sleep with Bathsheba. Uriah's like, no, I'm, I'm going to battle. I can't sleep with my wife. I'll go out there and, and fight with a thork. It won't work. So it wouldn't work in that, in that situation. First fruits uh, were always offered to God as a sacrifice. The best of the harvest was always offered to God. And so Jesus is saying, Satan is going to bring all his evil forces together, but by the power of the Spirit, the church will prevail because the church will have radical disciples, men and women who are faithful, no adultery, who are virgins that are sacrificial and focused, who are offering their first fruits, who are saved by Jesus. And this is the best part who follow Jesus wherever he goes, or as the Bible text says, who follow the land wherever he goes. I love it. So the final question, question four. What is our mission today as radical disciples of Jesus? Do we all have the same mission 
or our missions individualized. What is this mission? Well, the mission is described in three angels. Message one, Revelation 14, 6, 7. It says, go to Jesus, submit to him. He is our creator and he's worthy of our worship, which is a beautiful message. Just engage in Jesus and follow him. Message number two, the entire counterfeit league will crumble. That trinity, they're gonna crumble. Don't put your trust in them. Jesus is coming, so choose your side. Message number three, and this is the strongest, most vivid covenantal reminder that our choice will bring us either eternal connection with Jesus or eternal separation. Seems pretty cool, right? Hard choices, worship, trust, choose your side, right? Well, until you start to unpack all of this, the counterfeit league, until you start to unpack the three angels' messages, it all seems pretty cool. In fact, it doesn't actually sound like a radical call from Jesus to radical discipleship. In fact, it seems kind of palatable. I believe that's because our struggle has been muffled. I believe that we've shattered our eardrums from hearing. I believe that we have poor light and so our vision is kind of bleak. And I believe that we have age and so our muscles are actually kind of weak and we don't move. Um, maybe those metaphors don't ring true to you. So let me put it this way. Could it be that we simply are not in love with Jesus anymore? I mean, if you were to define what it is to fall in love, maybe it's that we rarely think about Jesus. Maybe that when we have adversity, we kind of push Jesus away. Maybe when we sing in worship, we don't smile. We don't have any emotions. We, we don't have any expression. We don't actually have any feelings for Jesus. Maybe we're constantly picking Jesus apart because it's easier to pick him apart than to be engaged in him. Maybe we can't wait for Sabbath to be over because we're thinking of a movie we're going to go see or something we can do that's kind of fun. Maybe we're not looking for ways to serve Jesus, but we're looking for ways to get out of church, ways to get out to do something else because there's something more important to do. The three angels' messages, all of them are hard messages. The three angels' messages, all of them are essential for us today. And the three angels' messages, all of them are the last call of God. And this is going to be difficult, what I'm going to say now, because they are given through a people who love Jesus, not through us. They're given through a people who love Jesus, not through us. When Jesus was asked to sum up the entire law, he didn't tell them, let me tell you three angels' messages. He said, love God, love humanity. Later on, he told John, let me tell you the mission now. And it is the three angels' messages. Because you see, God says that to be faithful, to have the privilege, to have the honor, to have the call, to be that radical disciple of Jesus, you have to love God and you have to love humanity before you declare what the three angels' messages are. If you just declare the three angels' messages, you become what we refer to as nutters. 
And, and, I, and nutter is a very English term, and so uh, a British term, a Southeast London term, so I'm just going to explain what a nutter is. And I know lots of nutters. A nutter is a term of endearment. It's a person that I love. It's a person who uh, needs psychiatric help. Um, they're a person who has the ability to tell everybody that they're wrong all the time, nonstop. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. That's all they like to do. They have no social life, really. Um, and they are a nutter. That's what they are. I'm talking about becoming a radical disciple. A radical disciple, man, they're a person who is in love with Jesus Christ. And when they're in love with Jesus Christ, they will listen to the messages in the middle of Revelation about Jesus Christ, where Jesus says that when this counterfeit league comes into full force, because you are engaged with me and because you worship me, you will proclaim to the world that there is only one true God and you will follow me wherever the Lamb goes. So when the going gets tough, they won't quit because their eyes are on Jesus. And when the church makes a decision they disagree with, they won't quit because their eyes are on Jesus. And when theology does not make sense, they won't quit because their eyes are on Jesus. When their marriage and families fall apart, they won't quit because their eyes are on Jesus. When they lose their jobs and fail in school, they won't quit because their eyes are on Jesus. When they have a debilitating disease hit their life and knock on their doors, they won't quit because they have their eyes on Jesus. When they lose all their savings and everything they put their trust into, they won't quit because they actually do have their eyes on Jesus. When they can't find a friend or something social in their life, they won't quit because they have their eyes on Jesus. I wish for each of us that our eyes were really fixed on Jesus that your love for him would go every single day. But that comes from knowing him every so more. Amazing grace, oh, how sweet that sound. Yesterday, uh, in the New York Times, and Becky sent me this article from one of my favorite authors, David Brooks. Uh, he wrote this article called The Golden Age of Bailing. Uh, it's a really funny article about how people have become accustomed to bailing on each other. Uh, and believe me, I don't mind when people cancel on me because if somebody just sends me a notice, like five-minute notice, or, hey, I'm not coming to my appointment, I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I will fill my time. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have no problem filling my time if somebody cancels me. Uh, but, but it has become really interesting to watch how people have started to cancel on each other. People cancel on their bosses all the time. People cancel on their family. People cancel on their friends. People cancel on their networks. Uh, it's easy to cancel on someone, especially today when you do it by text or by Snapchat or by, uh, by email um, because it's not personal, right? Um, especially if you don't have to do it by phone. Oh, my goodness. If you had to phone someone and you had to speak to them, oh, my goodness. If you had to see them face to face and say, I can't have lunch today because I'm, I'm in the middle of my liver transplant. I mean, it's very awkward, right? Because <laughs> you're not. I, I can see you standing right next to me. I mean, it's just these are difficult uh, explanations to do, right? And I think the reason is because canceling is very easy to do when you're detached from someone, right? You with me? It's very easy to cancel on someone when you don't see them, when you don't see their expression, when you don't think it's a bother for them or for you to cancel. I think that when you're not connected to Jesus, it's very easy to cancel on him. 
I think when you don't know Jesus a lot, it's very easy to cancel him. And I think we've lost the face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. I think it's distant. When you look at little children, they run to you. And uh, especially my boys when they're small and they run to you and, and they would raise their arms to you and you would pick them up. Those are pretty magical moments, right? And I, I feel like that's what the Father does with us. And so when we're in worship, when we raise our arms to God, uh, it's, it's our expression to Him that we want Him to pick us up. It's our way of tangibly saying that I believe He's real. That's what I'm doing. I believe He's real. And I, I would wish to, to be able to grab hold of Him. When I smile in the middle of a song, uh, when I'm reading the text, and I'm in, by myself and I'm reading the text and I, I have expression in the text because I feel I'm talking to him. I feel he's real. It's not I'm reading the text like it's black and white. I know he's listening. That kind of connection is what you should be looking for with God. You should be engaging with God in. Sabbath morning, what we do here is your culmination of a week just gone and it's your reset of your new week ahead. Daily walk is your culmination of yesterday and it's your reset of the next day. But all of these, all of these come together in worship. So I'm gonna pray a very difficult prayer for you right now. And after that prayer, um, you can fill out a connect card and uh, you can come see one of the elders or one of the pastors and uh, if you wanna just get connected again with God and you just don't know how to see his face again, like Moses asked to see God face to face and Abraham asked to see God face to face, it's real, then let's help you do that, all right? But I'm gonna pray this prayer, I'm gonna pray a Daniel 9 prayer. Do you know what a Daniel 9 prayer is? A Daniel 9 prayer is not a prayer that's lightly taken. It's a heavy prayer, nobody likes to pray a Daniel 9 prayer. A Daniel 9 prayer is a prayer of repentance. A Daniel 9 prayer is a prayer of recognition that we have not been connected and we have not done what God has called us to. So I'm gonna pray this prayer of Daniel 9. And after that, Jared and the team are gonna lead us into worship. I ask that you bow your heads with me now. You prepare your hearts for the word of God in your life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. So it's blind, but now I see. So it's grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Heavenly Fathers, by your Son alone, by the beauty of who you three are, that we indeed are saved. Amen.